0: Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York while hopefully inspiring the creation of some new ones. I am Richard.
1: And I am Gideon. And I am so excited about this episode. Our guest has some incredible and very unique stories to tell.
0: We talk about telling inspiring stories. Well, this story certainly inspires me. Claire Thomas, is a photographer and photojournalist from Penygroes in South Wales. Her work focuses mostly on issues relating to geopolitical and military conflicts, human rights, and other humanitarian and environmental crises, which has earned her many accolades and recognition at the British Journalism Awards, the UK Pictures Editors Guild, as well as the 2018 Amnesty International UK Media Awards.
1: Not surprisingly, Claire travels a lot with her work and has been to some unusual places. She spent time in the jungle, the camp at Calais that emerged from the refugee crisis in Europe, and she spent months with the Iraqi forces as they battled to drive out ISIS and take back the land. Covering a range of stories in various countries, Claire has contributed images and photo essays to leading newspapers, magazines and news agencies worldwide.
0: Talk about a client list. Claire's work has featured in the Sunday Times, The Guardian, National Geographic, Greenpeace and Al Jazeera. That's just the name of a few. And she also works regularly with the United Nations uh, and some of their agencies, as well as a number of other international NGOs, including Amnesty International, Oxfam and Save the Children.
1: On this episode, we talk with Claire about her path in photojournalism and her decision to go to the front line in Iraq. She shares her experiences from the burning oil fields in Chiara and the time she spent embedded in a makeshift field hospital in Mosul, the deadliest urban battle since World War II.
0: I couldn't kind of fathom what it was like, and I still really can't, to be a photojournalist in some of the situations that Claire has been in, uh, as well as just grappling with some of the psychological aspects that I think come with a job like that. was great to hear her take on it um but also i found it just really interesting talking about contrasting that with you know just being back at home in wales and i think it was really interesting to hear her just explain what it's like to go through that
1: now claire is based here in new york but when we spoke to her she was back home visiting family in wales and was very kind to spare some time for us we hope you enjoy claire thomas
0: Claire, where are you today? You said you're in Wales, but whereabouts in Wales?
2: I'm in a tiny village called Penagros, uh near Crosshens in South Wales, um, just staying at my dad's while I'm back home visiting for a few weeks, which is lovely actually. I forget how amazing Wales is, especially in the summer. It's absolutely stunning. I love it. And we've had quite nice weather. Now it's mostly raining, but yeah, it's lovely.
0: You and I were talking about it yesterday actually in preparing for this, we were saying how much how how it'd be nice to be there. Um you've had really good yeah, I heard you've had really good weather last yeah. few weeks. Maybe. I mean,
2: for me I was I was so glad to come back and just get out of the like thirty five degree heat of New York for a bit. And then I came home and it was just really, really hot here and of course there's no air conditioning, no fans.
1: No one's got air conditioning so at home, do they?
2: No, no, we just, I mean, we just don't need it, yeah. For three hundred and sixty four uh... days of the year. yes now it's like a blissful 19 degrees this for me is perfect i'm enjoying it
0: (laughs) how are you how are you because i assume you haven't been able to I, i mean is there is there work still happening with coronavirus on you know how is yeah i'm sure everyone's jobs and industries are different how's yours being affected
2: yeah well it's it's taken a bit of a hit definitely um I had a lot of projects lined up that I wanted to do this summer. I, I had wanted to go to Afghanistan in the spring. And then uh, there was just, a, yeah, I had a lot of trips in mind. And of course, all of that has gone out of the window. So instead, I've just been trying to focus on doing admin, catching up, to, like going through my archives. Um, and I'm so I'm trying to branch out into an, a new direction, as well as my photojournalism work. I'm trying to do... do something related to fine art and selling some of my work as prints so I've been trying to research I'm trying to keep myself occupied but I mean generally my my career is sort of flatlining a little bit in terms of photojournalism I haven't had a lot of projects uh, since the lockdown for sure, yeah a lot of people are are struggling I think
0: I mean it does sound like a a time to do all that Uh, all those projects that you always say you'll do like I'm sure going through the archives it's, it's a good time
2: yeah, exactly. It's, it's quite, it's quite a nice thing to do. And I spent while I was in New York, actually, I, I, set up a new website. So that that took a few weeks. And that was that was a really nice process. And that, that's something I've wanted to do for such a long time. But I just never had the never had the chance to sit down and think about it properly. So that that's something good that's come out of it, I guess.
1: Yes, I think that's most people's um, ambition at the moment is just to try and remain slightly productive during this lockdown, exactly. so we don't feel utterly useless.
2: Yes, just one thing a day.
1: I always used to say that if I ever had like six months off in a row, I'd get like really fit, really buff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd research all the topics that I wasn't interested enough in school to pay any attention to and wished I had. And I think that we can all say now officially that that was pie in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I've, done, good, yes. I've done none of that. You mean you're not a black belt and uh, fluent <laughs> in Spanish? <laughs> no, I'm afraid <laughs> not. Although, actually, I have, oh, I've I been cat. better at... Uh, oh, hello, cat. Uh I've been better at uh, keeping up with my Welsh learning than I had been.
2: Oh, so, do you speak Welsh?
1: No, I do not. I mean, right, okay, I, I are it learning. to myself. Uh, we, uh, do you still use it, Richard? Uh I use um, an app called Say Something in Welsh.
2: Oh, good for you. What That's about you? Do, you?
1: do you speak Welsh?
2: I do, yes. Oh. Not, not as well as I should, but I, I was brought up bilingually.
1: Oh, that's
0: so nice. It, it seems, um going back to the thinking of what you were saying around uh, the impact of COVID, just from looking at your work online, it does seem like travel seems to be obviously a big part of, of what you do. So I can imagine that it's, uh, it has been challenging. Um, maybe you can yeah. tell us a bit about your last project. I know you traveled to Mongolia um, to meet with some of the Kazakh hun- eagle hunters. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because those photos are stunning.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, last October, and um, yeah, it was a a dream. Really, I've always wanted to go there. You know, I think everybody's seen the photographs. They're quite famous, aren't they? The eagle, the eagle hunters. So I wanted to go and see them for myself. Um, and it's quite a. It was quite a different sort of trip for me because it wasn't really. Um, you know, it wasn't for photojournalistic reasons. I, it was a personal project. I just wanted to go and, and meet the the families. And an opportunity came up. So we went. Um, it was with a friend of mine, a guy I met in Iraq, actually. He organized the whole thing. And it was fascinating. So we we arrived in Ulaanbaatar, the capital. And then we flew out to, um, oh, gosh, Bayan Bayanulgi, a, a, a small town in the western mountains, uh, the, the Altai mountains. God, my memory is terrible. But it's just beautiful. I recommend anyone to go there. So, you know, the Golden Eagle Festivals, I think they do them all around the country. But we arrived just after that. Um, of course, I wanted to ride horses, and all the families we stayed with had horses as well. And um, So it was just a very sort of authentic, um, culturally immersive experience. Um, we spent a few days with three different families, and some had camels. They all They were all... Herders, so they're more herding families than hunting. They, I'm not sure how much um, actual eagle hunting they do. I mean, traditionally they use the eagles to hunt foxes and wolves and things like that. And then I think they sell the pelts, the fur. Um, But well, yeah. Nowadays, I think it's more to have people come and stay and for the experience of seeing them with the birds. And then they have the birds do some you know, some tricks, I guess, they they fly away and they come back, and it's just very, very interesting, and, uh, but, you know, in some ways, what I really found interesting was that it reminded me of Wales, it made, I felt quite comfortable with these families, because it, it was just like being on a, in some ways, on a Welsh farm, you know, like, um, in I mean, of course, the, the conditions are uh, a lot more rudimentary you know they would just live in small very very small stone houses but yeah it was something quite comforting you know the guys with a flat cap (laughs) like a welsh farmer and they were just very very warm and welcoming um so of course the worst thing sorry go on
1: no i I was just gonna ask um in terms of uh, arranging this like how much of this can be arranged in advance or do you just sort of turn up and hope that you meet some cooperative eagle hunters (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. Well yeah this, this this was a lucky trip for me I didn't have to organize anything um you you can do you can just go and in the the capital city I think there are a lot of people who can just arrange anything and they have contacts with families a lot of people go and do this kind of trip but um a friend of mine he's been photographing and creating a lot of work from Mongolia for several years so he he arranged everything I I just went I was very lucky. He'd made contacts through, um, like, a fixer, a local fixer. And she'd uh, arranged a vehicle, a driver. And so then we just drove, to, you know, out into the mountains to stay with the family. So it was luxury for me, actually. It's the first time I've traveled anywhere, really, and not had to organize the whole thing myself. Um, but it's very easy to do, I think. And, it, yeah, if anybody wanted to go, now I have the contacts. So I'd very easily be able to connect them with the people who'd be able to organize it, you know.
1: Well, the photos are fantastic. I was really enjoying reading just a little bit about them, about the relationship that they have with their eagle, and they, they get their course, eagle yes. at the age of 10. And then, how, how long does an eagle live? Like 20 years or something?
2: I think it's more, actually, isn't it? Like 30? I should know this.
1: And so they, they, they train this eagle as, as they themselves are learning uh, how, to, how to hunt. And it's a very, very cool relationship.
2: Yeah, they, you can see they, they bond with them, you know, they're, they're really close, they're really connected, um, and it's just fascinating seeing that, they're such good horsemen, they're incredible, because uh, I I'm I grew up riding horses, I, I absolutely love horses, um, so it's really interesting for me to see them riding, whilst riding with them, and they're carrying the eagles, and then they fly away, and they come right back. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, but I, I actually want to go back. Um, I wanted to go back this year, but now probably next year and learn more. Because the problem I found was um, I didn't get all the information I wanted. We we had a great fixer, but the I would like to go with a better translator maybe and you know, get some more interviews and things like that. But yeah, it's a very interesting part of the world. And it's completely safe, you know. A lot of the places I go aren't, aren't quite so safe. So it was really nice to be in a place where people weren't threatened uh, by by journalists not, not threatened or, or made, made to feel uncomfortable sometimes you know you get I uh, can get a bad response from people uh, but there in Mongolia everybody's just so easy and welcoming and happy to be photographed and spoken to It's a really really nice experience
0: So, so, you, so you mentioned that you, you this time you were have, everything was organised for you but normally you're doing all the organising so how, 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 do, how does that work and how does you know I, I'm certainly not familiar, too familiar with the, you know the field of photojournalism how how do projects come about uh, are you you know are, do you suggest them are you commissioned for them is it a bit of both does that then impact you know how much you know you're supported with the travel yeah how, how does how does it work
2: it, yeah it's a bit of both um and yeah it's, it can be quite challenging so when i first started i was completely freelance i didn't really have any contact with uh, news editors. I just decided, well, I mean, let me. where can I start? The starting point for me <laughs> was um, a picture I had published in National Geographic. That was the first picture I ever had published. And at the time I was teaching English in Spain. And it was a, photo, a, lucky, a, a lucky picture I took of a camel yawning in front of the pyramids. And I put it online and National Geographic asked if they could publish it in the magazine. And... When I got the paycheck, I was absolutely delighted. And I thought, wow, I could actually make an income out of this industry. I had no idea. So anyway, I quit my job and I went to Palestine. Because that's just where I've I've always wanted to to spend some time in Israel and in Palestine. Um, And then, um, gosh, it was just a case of figuring it all out, step by step, making a lot of mistakes. And I knew that I wanted to get into photojournalism, but I didn't know... I have no formal training. Um, I really didn't know how it all worked. Luckily, I'd been recommended to reach out to a Welsh photographer called Jason Tanner. Uh, And, you know, I write these kind of emails. I used to write them all the time where I would introduce myself, ask to connect, ask for some advice. And Jason was the only one who replied to me with, I mean, just like novels. (laughs) So much information. He was amazing. And he's been mentoring me ever since. Um, so he was the one who really guided me, gave me a lot of information. He also gave me access. Uh, he gave me his contact list, sorry, to all the photo editors at all the mainstream media outlets. And he started telling me like what I should be looking at in terms of creating a photo essay. So at this point, when I first went to Palestine, I was just looking for stories myself um not really knowing what i was doing but just speaking to a lot of people and they're in the west bank so sorry i was based in hebron and i ended up in this city called hebron through couch surfing i don't know if you know of the website yes i mean yeah.
1: it's it just all just sounds so daunting the idea of just <laughs> packing up a camera and go into the west bank and thinking right well i've got to look after myself i have to stay safe i have to find somewhere to live i have to know where my next meal is coming from and I have to get close enough to this newsworthy event that I can take some photos and then maybe someone will buy the photos of me. I mean, it's just such a leap that, I don't know, I think I'm very impressed, basically. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, looking back, I'm not really sure how, how I made it work, but there are so many stories in the West Bank and I was lucky because there, a lot of people speak English and a lot of people want their voices heard um so i didn't have to pay for a fixer i was very lucky my couch surfing host i mean he he changed my life really he he let me stay with i ended up living at his house and he he showed me a lot he explained to me a lot about the context um of what it, what it's like to be a palestinian basically living under israeli military occupation in the west bank and you know you you just start to get an idea of it And so then I was looking for like human interest stories and I met this woman in the old city there who was running a kindergarten um, to give like a safe space to Palestinian kids living there whilst also doing like non-violent action to resist the occupation like painting murals on, on the separation wall and things like that. So that then became my first photo essay that I produced for Al Jazeera. Of course, I did the story first, then I sold it afterwards. And and then I quickly understood that National Geographic rates were not reflective of the industry by any means. Um, mm. But, you know, what I, I mean, I, obviously I wasn't doing it for the money. I just really, really felt passionate. I still do. I really wanted to, to do that, that work. And so, yeah, I think I spent a few months in Palestine. I did a few other stories, um, similar kind of thing, what it's like for... Palestinians, their struggle. And then I think I, I, after that, I started doing some work around the refugee crisis in Europe. So I spent a bit of time in the jungle in Calais. And that was such an eye-opener. And I mean, also, a very enriching cultural experience. I, w- was, I felt so welcomed. I mean, it, it's just it's so so heartbreaking in many, many ways, walking around and everybody was coming up to me and asking when are we going to the UK? When are they coming to get us? Like, we've been waiting here in this mud. Like, wh- when do we go? So it's just it's utterly heartbreaking. But at the same time, I mean, I would walk around different parts of the camp and get to know like, the Afghan people, and then I would go and have lunch with the Kurds, and then I would have, have another meal with the Sudanese. They were just, it was just... It was incredible. Um and through that um that's how i ended up going to iraq basically
0: was uh... so so when you're in this situation you're walking through this camp are you are you just walk around on your own like how how did you just start taking photographs do you just start speaking to people like how how does that, how do those interactions work
2: yeah so it's a it's a fine line of course you have to be so careful uh, and of course i in the beginning i made a lot of m- mistakes um by like taking pictures before asking permission just not not you know not of somebody's face but just of the environment and of course some people it was a Sudanese guy actually who I ended up becoming quite good friends with um he saw me taking pictures um of a, of a, a gathering a, a cluster of tents and he came up to me and was like well, you know what what are you doing why are you taking pictures of the tents like how would you feel if we came and started taking pictures of you know where you live so, of course, I apologised, and then he invited me for breakfast in their little tent, and, and it, was, it was just really... But, of course, I I, um, I realised then that, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah you have to be respectful. So I would normally go and ask whoever I was taking pictures of, I would ask for their permission first, or speak to them first, see what the story is, and once they were comfortable with me being there, then, of course, it's very easy to take pictures. Um, but it, uh, there's a lot of sensitivity, obviously, around the refugee crisis, because you, it, can, it can have an impact on their refugee claim, their asylum claim, if photographs are published of them in one country and then they're claiming asylum in another country. So, I, yeah, I mm. learned quite quickly that... I, I mean, I didn't publish anything mm. until I was, was completely sure. Um,
0: I mean, that must just be a general challenge, I don't know what challenge, but something that exists in all type of you know, fields of photography. I mean, I'm sure especially the areas that you specialise in um but obviously there's a responsibility I'm sure you know to get messages out and to communicate what's happening mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure that's just a balance and tension that is always there that you always have to I guess manage with
2: yeah definitely and there's a lot of ethical considerations um so I think I mean when I when I was approaching the refugee crisis uh, or the refugee situation I wanted to Either tell personal stories, so like you know, focus on one individual or one family, or tell a story of the situation as a whole. So I, I covered um, the uh, eviction of, of the the refugee camp in the jungle, and when oh when they gosh. came and
1: set fire to it and bulldozed it and that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that that was harrowing because people had set up you know little communities. Um, there was a. a A UK-based charity called Jungle Canopy that had donated caravans to a lot of families there, and this was all that everybody had, you know. And they were they'd been there for some had been there for many many months, were waiting to just be reunified with family in the UK, not and and not really having any kind of access to legal advice on what they needed to do to to get there, you know. Because it's an unofficial camp. Um, so the situation was, was really tense. And then, um, oh my gosh, every night there were clashes with riot police. And it was it was very interesting because I would just be hanging around, taking pictures, um, walking around the camp, and the, a lot of the refugees and migrants would be playing cricket in the evening. And then the riot police, French riot police, would just walk in through the the cricket field in full riot gear. And, I mean... <laughs> From my, from my perspective, it seemed antagonistic, and of course, Absolutely. then some of the refugi- some of the refugees would start throwing throwing rocks, and then it would just become this like nightly charade where some would throw rocks, then the riot police would fire tear gas, and yeah, it, it makes for it makes for dramatic pictures, of course, um, but it, it wasn't an easy time for for those people. It was it was it was tough.
0: Yeah. And there's obviously no coordination. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking about things that are happening in the US right now. Mm. I think about Portland, and oh my gosh. You know, I think one, yeah. one thing that's happening right now is obviously social media is at a stage where with live video and how connected and how quick to build networks can feel there's a it does feel like there's a degree of like communication and uh, and, and collective, um, I don't know support that's and, and in terms of information sharing that seems possible. But of course, like back. Yeah, at that point, that, that didn't exist. Um,
2: yeah, I guess to
0: some degree, right? Yeah,
2: I, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I mean, there was um, a lot of people um, who I met were, you know, relying on um, gathering information through social media, f- through their phones and things. So, I mean, thank God for that. And I, th- yeah, I think it's it's a really important. Um, that all this information is, you know, is, is accessible now.
0: I guess I was thinking more like live, like the the live video component. Oh,
2: right? sorry. Um, yes, 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 of course. Is, yeah. yeah, sorry. It's
0: like stories and things. And, no, and, no, and no, in no, some no. ways,
1: that's the function that you're fulfilling by being there with your camera. Yeah. I mean, is there ever, a, did you ever come to a situation where you'd have the police saying, no, you can't, you can't photograph this?
2: No, strangely not. No, I, which which is quite surprising i did often feel quite, quite nervous um photographing police but they they um, they never seemed to care sometimes the police would stop me and come and speak to me um and i can't remember it was, this was a while ago this was in 2016 i guess i can't remember what they would say but no i was very lucky the only time i've had uh, some confrontation with uh, police or soldiers is in in the West Bank with Israeli soldiers, um, and that actually was more frightening to me than um, being on the front line in, in in Iraq in the battle against ISIS.
0: Wow, well, what, what was it about that that situation that made it so har- or so terrifying?
2: Well, I think. Um, Israeli soldiers have a, have a lot of authority they have a, a lot of power and they can act w- with impunity i mean they they show time and again that their actions generally go unpunished you know they you you often see videos now of um Palestinian c- civilians unarmed civilians being being killed being murdered by Israeli soldiers and uh, there's there's very little done about it. One of the, another, another story I did for Middle East Eye from Palestine was of a 16-year-old teenager who's, who was a member of a, a group called Youth Against Settlements. He'd been accused of uh, carrying a knife, by, an Israeli soldier accused him of carrying a knife, and so he was uh, taken into custody and tortured for seven days. And eventually, he was represented by an Israeli, uh, an amazing Israeli human rights lawyer, who insisted on a DNA test, and of course, that exonerated him. But th- these kind of injustices are, are, are commonplace, I think.
0: Well, I'm interested. What, what what made you, I guess, interested in this particular area of journalism? You know, you, you, know, you has specialized a lot in, you know, these humanitarian issues these social issues around conflict was that always something you were were you always like that kind of politically minded and social minded or or was it something you kind of fell into as you started to I guess play with your or explore with your camera
2: um well I I studied politics at university so I was always Mm -hmm. interested in politics and um especially is the Israeli Palestinian conflict has always been Um, interesting to me Um, and I always felt drawn to go and see for myself and try and understand it better Um, but also um, while I was at university I during the summers I traveled each summer to a different country the first summer I went to Canada then I went to uh, South Africa and another time I went to Ghana and so that's where I really got into the humanitarian side of things and and then that's where I started taking pictures um, that I felt had, had had a potential to generate action. Um, it was to, I, At the time, I was working with a small community-based organization that was supporting women living with HIV AIDS. And um, I wanted to help to raise awareness and raise funds. We started up a campaign to buy beds. We were visiting women who didn't really have have anything no no belongings and and no bed and so I just was trying to think of something that I could try and something small that I could try and provide with the limited fundraising Um, and anyway so I just found that the pictures that I took were were central in um, in helping to generate interest in that campaign and yeah it made me realize that you can take pictures aren't just you know until then I was just doing like travel photography basically and then I realized that pictures can have an impact and meaning uh, so I think from then on I started to focus more on the journalistic side and humanitarian side of photography
1: Is, is there ever a consideration when you um say when you're in the in a in a conflict zone where there's a photo that you want to take but there's maybe uh, an angle that the media would prefer, and and you you know you have to kind of get that if you if you want to get paid this month. Hmm. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that's one of the benefits of being a freelancer, is that you you know you you're it's up to you what what picture you get. Um, especially um, while I was covering the war against ISIS, I mean I I was there completely freelance so I was selling the pictures afterwards I think it can be slightly different if you're on commission if you if you're getting a day right to go and capture the images but I mean you have to it, it's imperative that you you know you stay true to yourself you have to take pictures that that aren't going to compromise your own journalistic integrity um, however when <laughs> when you submit images to if you're working for an agency or or indeed a newspaper you I would submit the images, um, so I would sometimes get paid for, let's say, a collection of ten images, and you don't have control of the story that accompanies those images. Oh, um, so, so is that
0: the distinction? Is that the distinction between you mentioned a, 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 you, a photo story photo or essay? Or exactly, a photo essay is when you're mm-hmm. driving the narrative. In yes. the commerce, I mean, I, I guess you—they may, may not always use that, or maybe it, it, they do use that. Versus yes. maybe just individual photographs.
2: Exactly. So this is what this is the format that I prefer um, to to create a, a photo essay, which is normally anything from ten to twenty images, um, mm-hmm. and then you put as a you know photographer, you put it all together yourself. Um, and with Al Jazeera, it was like a three hundred word introduction, and then with each photograph. You continue the narrative of the story, so you have much more control then over the story
0: it's not ne- sorry, it's it's, but no, it's not necessarily your it's not necessarily your words that make it into the into the publication. it's more just that informs how the piece hangs together no or, no
2: then in in that case, then it's your writing as well
0: oh it is your writing yeah, okay sorry so yes in, in that so in that case you are okay, you are writing yes, yeah, so you
2: have the byline well. for the for the whole story then. Um, And I actually quite like writing too, so I'm trying to do more of that. I started just just writing and including a few, like I was doing written features with accompanying photographs. Now I do more photographs with accompanying text. Um,
0: And I I suppose that's related to the subject matter. If it's something more not current affair Mm -hmm. or, or not directly covered in the press at the time, you may do more of a photo essay versus if it's a current event that's happening you're probably capturing more of the photographs is that right
2: that's uh, yeah exactly if it's not a time sensitive piece and it's a, and it's a feature then it's easier to produce um like a, a more documentary style photo essay um and of course because those take take much more time anyway like i would try and spend a few days with a family if i'm just documenting you know something special about a, a particular family whereas when it's hard news yeah they just want you have to be quick which i'm not always that quick in getting like it it was really hard in Mosul trying to get to file the images from the war zone quick enough for them to get into the newspaper the next day um but then they just um yeah they just buy the a photograph or, or a collection of images that the the editors then will connect with the story written by their correspondent
1: when you're in these um Sort of time-sensitive, high-pressure situations. I mean, how frequently do you take a picture and just know that one—that's the one—that's going to make it into the paper because it of some element that it, that it contains?
2: <laughs> not that often. No, sadly. no. <laughs> at least not for me. Um, I mean, um, in Mosul, there were a lot of uh, of the, the best war photographers in the world you know they were everybody was there so it's really hard then to just capture standalone images that are different from what everybody else is getting and they all have much better contact with the editors or they're working with the AP or Reuters those guys had it covered you know and they had amazing access and they were just um, so they wouldn't be freelance they'd be there they were not freelance got it yeah so my Um, my challenge was to try and find a different angle i guess from them and i struggled with that for quite a long time my first two weeks however in iraq oh my god it's never happened to me since but i those two weeks i published every story i found i did i think six or seven stories in two weeks never happened since um, but there, it, it was just a very interesting time, as I, we were talking earlier about the, the fires, the oil well fires were burning, which you know visually is just it was striking and fascinating, and of course devastating. But I was there for two weeks, and then I went back in February, and I basically stayed in Iraq then. And yeah, it took me a while to find my way because I was finding that it's it's really tricky as a freelancer. You go, you basically pay a fixer to take you to the front line. And that can cost up to $500 a day or more. I mean, a day, day. yeah, they, you can't, because you can't work in a war zone without a fixer, you know, they're your translator, your driver, they take care of you, they get you through the checkpoints that I mean, it's so hard to get through checkpoints. And, you know, it with one day on the front line, it's God, I just wasn't able to get anything published, because it's not enough time. Um, it was never like much of a story. We were just focusing on the the military efforts, which is sort of a, I don't know, it didn't give, it wasn't giving me the, the real insight into the human cost, you know, what was happening for the people. Mm. Um, so after, oh my gosh, weeks and weeks of trying to get access with a group of medics, a lot of networking, it was all just just talking with people and i finally managed to convince um an ngo called global response management they were doing extraordinary work they were i i'd heard about them i'd heard quite a lot about them that they were operating out of field clinics just uh, less than a kilometer from the front line so i thought if i could get access with them i wouldn't need a fixer and i'd be able to sort of document their work as well and so, yeah, they they agreed to take me, and I was supposed to just stay for a day or two, and yeah, I st- I ended up staying for three weeks, and that that was a turning point for me, and it was just the the most, I mean, rewarding, heartbreaking, like yeah, experience I, I've ever had. Um, I, did, I I couldn't believe it. I mean, the first day, there were there were just so many. I mean, yeah, so many people, casualties being brought in. Many of whom had already already died, and these medics were, their heroes. I I couldn't I couldn't imagine how they how they um, managed to work like that. It was really inspiring.
1: I mean, were you were you emotionally prepared for that? I mean, not, how could, not I mean, really. How could you be? It's a stupid question, but did yeah. I suppose my question is, you know, how did that affect you?
2: Um. Yeah, I get asked that a lot. And I remember actually uh, Pete Reed, He was he's the founder of the the medical organization. And when he agreed to let me go to the to their field clinic on the front line, and I was saying thank you so much. This is, this is an amazing opportunity. And he was like, "Don't don't thank me. Like you'll never be able to unsee what you're about to see." Um, I just shrugged it off. And of course, it it's it's yeah. You see things that will stay with you forever. And yeah, of course, I mean. I think I think I'm quite an emotionally strong person from my experiences in in West Africa um, that taught me to try and not be too emotionally vulnerable because then you can't help people and you can't do your job um, and but honestly I didn't know how I would cope with seeing traumatic injuries and things like that I've never ever, you know yeah never seen anything like that but it's Somehow having a camera um, was, was good in giving me some kind of uh, professional distance. You just focus on getting the settings right, trying to tell the story as best as you can. Um, yeah, and I also just, you know, try to think about the, the positive sides of it, you know, the, the strength and resilience of the people who survived and the medics who, who helped save those lives. And also that it was my choice to be there. You know the people who were the real survivors and victims. This was they didn't choose any of that, and yeah, the impact on them is is real. And it's never they'll never shrug that off. It was it's hard to understand. Uh, but for me, it was you know I could leave at the end of the day. I I was so lucky that I was able to just go back to you know comfortable accommodation and escape.
0: You're basically coming in each day, so you'll get as a your fixer is. is I assume you're staying at is it a ho, like a hotel on the other side of the city? Like well,
2: so I was um, during those three weeks that I was with the medics, um, I was just we were embedded. Um, well, we were staying. We were staying at a at a, an abandoned mosque that was just behind the front line, or like in a, mm. in a nearby neighborhood. Uh, so that that accommodation w- wasn't comfortable at all. We were we were all stuffed into a a room, um, uh, just with you know little mattresses lined up, and we had a hose for a shower. But I mean, you know, it was it was fine. I used to work on a ranch in Wyoming, so living living rough is is <laughs> it comes naturally to me. You know, it was fine, um, but it was really bonding as well it was a, like a bonding time because and you were asking me how do, how do I cope and I, I think that was one of the really important things for me was that we had um like a support network and at the end of the day we would all go back to the mask and um and talk about what we'd seen and then and there were the medics uh, a lot of the medics or well, three of them were, were women and I felt like it really helped to to talk it through you know and sometimes we'd have a cry and it you know and, um yeah, it, that that really helps. Um, so
0: this, so this appointment, they're they're a mixture at the medics as well. It's not, or, or is it some press? Are you mixing with other photojournalists Like
2: When I embedded with the medics, I was just with the medics then. The the there were no. That's what gave me the unique access. There weren't other other photographers and journalists were coming in for the day, um, and they would have permission to go to the to the clinic for a short time and take pictures. But a lot of the time that wasn't when something was happening. I mean, we spent most of the time sitting around, a lot of the time just sitting around, um, chatting with the soldiers and uh, making coffee in uh, little water bottles and things. And then all of a sudden, there'd be a mass casualty incident, you know. So I was able to just be kind of a fly on the wall. It wasn't a case of like paying someone to take me there, spend an hour, then leave. I was just there. So when things happened, whether it was day or night... We were just there because the the mosque also where they were where we were staying was also a clinic. So some soldiers were brought there through the night, and the medics, my God, they just they never stopped working. Like at some point during the day, I would be so tired that I would just say, "Okay, that's it, I'm done, I'm going to sleep." But the medics just never ever stopped. If a, if a casualty was brought in, they were straight there. So I don't, I don't know how they do it. And the the women who so there was a I can't remember there must have been about five or six medics international medics and then they were working alongside iraqi special forces medics so they were kind of kind of working as a as a team i mean they were operating out of the same area anyway um, and,
1: and so i'm just just trying to get a, a picture of the timeline i suppose so you you with the iraqi forces and advancing with them as they're driving out isis from these occupied towns is that is that yes
2: yeah So that's, I mean, that's how um, I started anyway. uh, My first day ever going to the front line was the most frightening experience of all of them. Um, And that was uh, with, oh gosh, they weren't even, they were local militia forces. And it was south of Mosul in a tiny village. I think I got some of my best pictures ever from just that one day because it was near the the burning oil well, So the sky was just black, and it really gave this dramatic feel to the to the whole scene.
0: And mm-hmm. there, yeah,
2: Iraqi uh, the Iraqi forces were pushing ISIS out of villages. Um, and that was the only time that I've had to run from house to house while being shot at. Like, that that didn't didn't experience that again and then we at one point oh god it's not funny but I mean it is in hindsight but it wasn't funny at the time but we were just taking cover for there were well, there was just one isis sniper uh firing at the house where we were we were taking cover behind this house and we were just waiting for the, I don't know the soldiers to say okay let's go um never, never really knowing what was going on and Then we were sitting on the ground and a couple of soldiers came up to me and they were like, they were saying, Sura, Sura, we want to take a picture with you, uh, which happens a lot with any any Western journalist. They like, they know, they like to take pictures with you. It's nice. So they, so I stood up, I had my helmet on and my body armor and they whipped off my helmet and then a bullet whizzed past my head. No. (laughs) And of course, everybody heard it. I sort of felt the air and, and I was you know, in a little bit of shock. And then they just burst out laughing and they were like, well, if you hear it, you're not dead. <laughs>
1: oh God. No, you're right. Yeah. That's not funny. <laughs> I know.
2: I think, I, think so I, stupid,
0: I assumed
1: it? that there was just a, a little bit of a barrier between you and immediate danger, just just in terms of <laughs> professional...
2: You'd think so, wouldn't you? Health
1: and safety. I don't know. I, know I never... No, I'm really surprised I'm, about that.
2: I've never imagined that... You know, you could just go, like, I could go as a, a freelancer, you know, not attached to any any media outlet and just pay someone to take me to the front line. I, that's not how I thought it was done, but apparently well, it We're does, so yes.
1: protected, aren't we, in our lives? Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's all these things to keep us from danger so that we don't sue our employers or what have you, but if, yes. if, if you don't yeah. have that, then yes.
2: Yeah, Exactly. Oh, do you, and and,
0: you, and you're, you've got this, I know that you're trained in, in battlefield first aid and in yeah, how to God. deal yeah. in hostile, hostile how to survive hostile environments. Had you done that training before that? I
2: I, no, uh, sorry, just before that. Yeah, just before, actually, okay. that was, I think I finished it the day before that experience. Um, but I was very lucky when I arrived in Urbil, which is where I lived for the, the two and a half years. Um it's just, it's a city in the Kurdish region and it's just like a, an hour from Mosul but when I arrived there the first time in December two thousand sixteen, the house where I was living in or I was going to stay in was uh they were doing the journalists they were carrying out a three day hostile environment training course, so I was able to join that and um yeah I'm so glad so it's
1: not it's not a requirement
2: it's not a requirement no, but I would strongly urge anyone to to make i i yeah i was lucky i was advised to not even think about going to the front line with, without having the, that training. Because you have to know, you know, h- how to save your colleague's life if you need to put on a tourniquet or, or anything, you know. Ba- very basic things. Of course, I'm really lucky I didn't have to do any of that, but it, it did make me feel more comfortable, like, having the first aid kit and knowing that not only that I would be able to perform that if I absolutely needed to, but that my colleagues would also be able to do that if they needed to.
1: Wow. Um, so we we briefly touched on the burning oil fields of is it Kiara? Kayara. Kayara.
2: Kayara, but it's pronounced in many different ways. But so,
1: yeah. your photos from that uh ended up in Geographical, the uh, the Royal Geographical Society's magazine, right? Yeah. That's so that right, that yeah. would also have been on a freelance basis. You you went yeah. there, took the photo essay and you pitch it to them? You
2: Yes, exactly. So the day um, we went, the first time we went there, um, was in the evening, uh, the day after the crazy frontline day, or that's sorry, the, the same day. And I took a few pictures of the, the oil wells at nighttime and then I pitched that story to Ge- Geographical Magazine the next day. And, uh, then they covered the cost of me going back to get mm. some more pictures. And that's when I got the, the close-ups with the, with the firemen and I got to interview them and everything. And. Of course, once they once they see that you want to get close, they're more than happy to oblige. And we're like, I could they were, I was was as close as could be, and they were trying to give me the fire hose. <laughs> it's it they're just oh. such such good fun.
0: I couldn't. I was trying to tell from the product, because it looks like you're you are that close. I couldn't tell whether it was just really you long lens. So no, yeah, no, you you <laughs> so you really are that close.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Can you I'm feel the like, heat? Like, how is the heat? Like, can you?
2: Yeah, it's quite intense. You can feel yeah. it, yeah. But it, it's cold in Iraq at that time of year, so it was quite nice. Warm you up,
0: right? Um,
2: yeah, but, oh my gosh. it's. I mean, as long as you're on, you know, the, the 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 wind is blowing away, then then it's fine. Of course, you couldn't be on the other side of it. But, yeah, it was really, really staggering to see um, how that's going to impact, you know, the, well, you could see how it was impacting the, the local town, The the sheep were walking free. They were covered, you know, their their coats were black with soot. Uh, It was was very pervasive.
1: Maybe just for uh, context, could you explain to the listeners who might not already know... No, it's fine. Um, Could you explain to the listeners who might not already know why the oil wells, why the oil fields were on fire?
2: So, yes, of course. So ISIS had seized control of the oil field. Um... Dur- you know, during the occupation of the whole area, I guess, I, I'm not quite sure of the dates, I can't remember when they seized control. Um, and uh, when the, the Iraqi forces were advancing through that area, and retaking the, the, that area, what was it? So they, I think originally, ISIS militants started setting fire to the oil wells to try and disguise their positions from the drone strikes because, um, of course, you weren't, they just weren't able to, to see them. And then I think towards the end, it was like a scorched earth tactic. They just burnt everything. I think there was about 19 oil well fires. I can't remember, but there were, there was a lot. And that whole area was littered with IEDs. They were everywhere. So they had teams of people trying to to find the mines as well.
0: I mean, that must have been... I mean, that must be terrifying in itself, just walking around knowing that, like, that. And I'm sure you're only going where people have, you know, said they're clean, but that's never guaranteed, right? So, is yeah, that, well, is just that make, thought always in the back of your mind?
2: Yeah, you always make sure you're not the first person <laughs> right. to make sure somebody's ahead of you. But of course, we were only able to go where Iraqi security forces were leading us. Right. And they. Generally knew exactly where they, the the mines were, and so we would just follow them very very carefully. And yeah, of course, you'd never really step out of out of the path that they've that they've taken. Um, but yeah, it's quite it's quite frightening. And you know, there were still um, ISIS flag paintings all over the place. Um, it, it wasn't. I think when we got there, it wasn't long really that the area had been liberated. But yeah. Just,
1: And how how long were you with the Iraqi forces? Because they advanced eventually to retake Mosul. Yes. And you were there for that?
2: I was, yeah. So um, I covered it from... I think the the military offensive started in um, October, in Mosul, October 2016. I arrived a bit late. I was there in December 2016 and I covered it until the end. So the liberation was July, I think July 10th, 2017, and that was when I was in Mosul, That the, the three weeks preceding that. Um, and so it was fascinating to see, you know, well, to hear the Prime Minister declaring victory over ISIS, whilst we could see that there were still a lot of ISIS fighters that were they, you know, they hadn't. I mean, they'd. I suppose it, they'd declared victory over Mosul as a whole, but there was still a very, very fierce, strong pocket of of ISIS militants remaining in the old city, and a lot of soldiers at that point were coming into the clinic with horrific injuries. Um, so it, the battle wasn't over at that point, but by all intents and purposes, they they you know liberated the city. Um, but that. So after that point, a lot of journalists left. Um, the you know the battle was over. I, I went home for a rest for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. And then I went back to Iraq in September. My plan was to cover the next offensives in other areas of Iraq. Um, and then I started working with uh, the United Nations, uh, with UNDP. And so then I, I stayed for another two two years or so, just and covering that- like the, the rebuilding, which was really, really interesting and quite uplifting to see, you know. People putting their lives back together slowly.
0: What so when it, you're oh, there with,
1: oh, go on. Sorry, Richard. I, I, I was just going to ask on that
0: on that case. So when you said you went back home, where were you go back home? Where was home at that point?
2: So sorry. So I came back to Wales. To Wales. Um, okay. Yeah, I spent How? some time. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I just came back to but Wales What's it, it like
1: going break. into Tesco's? A week. Weird.
2: Really weird, and you know, you. I came home, and of course, I wanted a break and some time to decompress. And you know, I find Wales is a good place because it's it's very grounding, and you can get you know a lot of time in nature and everything. But it's quite strange because nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wanted to know about you know Mosul and and violence and trauma. It's not it's not an easy thing to talk about. So then I found that I was struggling to find ways to to yeah just to just to talk about it and for me communication is really important um it, it's it's sort of healing to to talk about what you've seen what you know how it makes you feel um so I was quite glad to go back actually
0: <laughs> well, i can ima- yeah i mean it must be a really difficult in that situation when you know you, you you've seen these things and you know, someone you know wants to talk about. Everyone wants to talk about is how you know you now have to use a pound coin to use a trolley at Tesco's, and yeah. you're just like, I don't really You know, I don't want to talk about that. That doesn't.
2: Yeah, exactly. That
0: really tells some significance. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. And I I did this thing where I put together a slideshow of hundred pictures, and some of them you know I have a lot of horrendously graphic images that. I would never be able to publish, nor would I want to. But I felt like I wanted to show these to to family and friends. Mm. And so I forced everybody to sit through this slideshow. And it, it didn't go down very well. Nah. But, you know, I just wanted people to see what, you know, because we were part of this war. And a lot of those, well, I mean, of course, ISIS was uh, was a direct result of the invasion uh, that we were part of in 2003. Um, and so I just feel like people ought to know the reality of, you know, what war is really like, because it's easy to sanitize it and say, you know, yes, the the, the military is advancing, they're, they're gaining ground, it's, you know, it's all good. But the reality is that the airstrikes and the fighting took a heavy toll on, on civilians. And
0: the human costs and... We all, you know, when we make the political, we, you know, use our political right to make decisions around politicians or governments that are related to, you know, decisions that are made to war. There is a direct correlation to you as an individual. Um,
2: yeah, exactly.
1: I think it's worth also remembering that the the refugee crisis is is as mm-hmm. a result of British and U.S. Uh, military action. Because there's a exactly. lot of negative language used around the refugees. You know, yeah. did, did you hear how many of them made it over this month? No? Oh, my gosh. You know,
2: I just find this absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, anybody, anybody in their right mind, if, you know, if you have a family and you hear that ISIS is advancing and they're going to kill your family, of course you flee. You know, absolutely. Who wouldn't? And yeah, the the language around the refugee crisis, I find really dehumanizing. Very there, and I there's a lot of
1: rhetoric that suggests that you know, you know oh they're just coming here to freeload. They've heard we've got the NHS. Well, actually, I think they're just here because no one's bombing Britain at the moment.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: I think it's the main appeal.
2: Yeah, it's just safety. At the
0: beginning, you talked a little bit about you know how you how you found yourself you know in this in this environment and um, how you've navigated your way a little bit through that can you talk a little bit more about that i'm sure there's you know a ton of different barriers that exist um today i mean specifically you know i think as being a not just a someone from wales but also as a woman photographer and photojournalist how have you how have you navigated you know those environment this environment and um what are the, some of the challenges you've faced and um even if there's any advice you know to other people out there that you would resources.
2: Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think photojournalism is an industry where at least for me there was no clear roadmap. Um I just had the most important thing for me was persistence and having a passion for storytelling. and I think that obviously that that's essential. And yeah, I mean I just sort of found my way. I started by doing um, some stories uh, or some freelance work with the Kamala journal actually, and from there i just as i as I mentioned I just decided to go to the west bank and and search for stories um but yeah of course it's it is a challenging industry, and I think connecting with others in in the field is is really really important um
1: would you advise people to do this <laughs>
2: <laughs> i would yeah just don't take your helmet off that's all
1: that's the number one rule
2: (laughs) yes oh my god uh just you know i think if 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 it's if it's in you kind of thing then it's yeah why why not i mean you know it's it is important to have to have a visual record of those kind of events but i mean I, i think it's such a tough environment that people who aren't cut out for it just wouldn't wouldn't get there really I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to, to get out there, you know, and make things work just logistically uh, and financially. Um, mm. Oh, my God. Yeah, financially, it's a nightmare.
0: <laughs> I think regardless, though, like, I think just any... The, just I feel what's good about this, what we try and make with this forum is for more creative fields where there isn't a clear pathway. Yeah. And I think photojournalism in general, whether it's on the front lines or just in general, like, having belief... And, and people hearing, you know, that people have done it. And, you know, they it, it just figured it out. And sometimes it just takes requiring a leap of faith. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's those stories from people like yourself, who you know, that people hear and hear those tidbits that really can have that difference between someone, you know, taking that leap or going on that trip or whatever that might be that ends up becoming life-changing for them.
2: Of course, there are loads of courses people can do. Uh, I think photojournalism is a, f- is a phenomenal... Degree course to take, uh, it just wasn't the path that I took. But actually, having a background in politics was was useful for me in helping me understand uh, the context of the conflicts and situations I was covering. Um, the challenges, oh gosh, there's there's many. Um, as a freelancer, it's just hard because it is a massive leap of faith as, because you just don't know if you're going to get your work published. You have to go find a story. Um, gather all the content, and then pitch it. And, of course, pitching emails, pitching stories is a... Gosh, it's an art in itself. Um, And that's something I'm still trying to figure out. But getting editors to notice your work is really, really tough, I think. You know, it's a very competitive field. Um, There are lots and lots of people now who are very good photographers. A lot of people have good cameras. But there's still, you know, there is still a market for talent um so you have to just stand out and, and find alternative stories I guess that aren't immediately obvious so maybe doing more in-depth pieces um more features and having a very strong online portfolio that for me was really important uh, the first thing I did was set up a, a website to showcase some of my pictures so that editors could see examples of what I'd done um so, um, what else can I say? As a, as a woman, of course, um, there are there are challenges, but as there are for 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 anyone um, in in conflict zone, it's just tough. You know, the the challenges, I guess, are the same. Um, it is a male dominated industry, and I could see that when I was in Iraq. I'd say the majority of reporters and photographers were men, but there were a lot of absolutely incredible female photographers and journalists too. So I actually, I, I felt like um, it was a really good uh, community of freelancers. And in some ways, uh, working in a conservative society like uh, Mosul, there are a lot of advantages of being a woman. I had much better access mm. to stories uh, involving women. Um, of course, I could spend time with the women, whereas male photographers it wouldn't be appropriate uh, it wasn't as easy anyway for them so there were definitely mm. advantages um but yeah I, I I recommend this this work for anyone who's interested for sure and you can there are so many stories to tell you know for me for me the the crucial thing was understanding how to tell a story visually
0: this might not be a we may not keep this in but uh I'm just curious how you'd answer and it may not be possible but in the world of photojournalism, are you? Would you say you were a photographer first or a journalist
2: first? Ooh, ah, oh, that's a good question. I would say I'm. I'm a photographer first. Yeah, I think so. Because for me, it's. I. I think photographs are more powerful. I mean, I. You know, a photograph is an attention grabber. If you have a, a compelling picture that asks questions that's going to it's going to make people stop and look and then maybe they'll read the story but if you don't have that that visual element uh, I, I think it's it's harder to, to to spread the message you want to send um, but yeah i think i'm a photographer first
0: and i imagine that the right photo at the right time in the right context is is a story yes
2: exactly hope you'd hope so anyway <laughs>
1: So you mentioned that you uh, your online portfolio, you have your website. Where where can people see your work and, and get in touch with you if, if, uh, if they wanted to?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, my website is www.clairethomasphotography.com. And I'm also on Instagram, but I don't use it as much as I should. And that's also Claire Thomas Photography. And all the links uh, are on my website and my contact info is all there as well.
1: Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to us today. It was fascinating. I could have kept going. Oh, could have thank kept going. you.
2: Thanks so much for inviting me. It's, as I said, you know, I, I rarely get a chance to talk about my experience in Mosul. So it's a, it's just, it's really nice to have a have a chance to do that. So thank you.
1: And um, you know, when you make it back to New York, we'd love to meet up and chat again. But you can yeah, keep, you can keep your slideshow.
2: <laughs> no, no, no way. <laughs>
1: Oh my <laughs> well we hope you enjoyed listening and if you did then please subscribe and leave us a review as long as it's positive the more people review the show the more people will get to hear the show
0: yeah and if you'd like to get in touch with us then please do the email is podcast at new YorkWelsh.com or you can contact us through any of the socials both our instagram and twitter are at new York welsh And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings on, you can do
1: so by subscribing to the monthly newsletter on our website,
0: newyorkwelsh.com.